If I had an unexpected weekend, now this was my first women's retreat. <laughs> and uh, Rachel and John and I went up there to lead worship. And what was really nice about it, at least for John and I, is we led worship and then we got to just wander off. And what could have originally been a time that was you know, busy and, and, and real involved really wasn't. We just got to worship and then wander. What a great way to live, worshiping and wandering, you know? <laughs> I could do that all the time. So we're out there at Cedar Springs Retreat Center, beautiful retreat center, and uh, John and I climbed up to the top of Haystack Hill, and there's a 750 feet above sea level looking out over the valley and, and over the farmlands of northern Washington, the Sumas area. Absolutely beautiful. And I got to wander with Cheryl on this long path, this long hike. My legs are cramping up this morning, but yesterday it was good. And just just talk about the Lord. And pray together, and we even had on my iPod the Keith and Kristen Getty worship album, Awaken the Dawn, which by the way, in my mind, one of the best worship albums ever put out there. Keith and Kristen Getty, G-E-T-T-Y, and she, uh, they're the ones who wrote In Christ Alone. And two or three others, probably other songs, worship songs you would recognize, uh, um, By Faith, the song we sing By Faith is on that album, they wrote that. Marvelous, great, great worship album. Um, so we're, we have that on my iPod, and we just kind of played that as we walked along. And as Cheryl and I were walking, we, we began talking a little bit. Uh, there's a book that, as I had extra time yesterday, and, and on Friday I was doing some reading, and there's a book called The Spiritual Man by Watchman Nee. So I'm giving you two resources right off the bat this morning. Keith and Kristen Getty's worship album, and The Spiritual Man by Watchman Nee. If you've never read that, you need to pick up a copy of it and read it. One of the most profound books on spiritual living and absolutely grounded in scripture that's what I love about it everything he says he'll say something you go really and then he'll start to back it up with numerous verses and passages and you say wow that, that's right that is exactly what what it says in the spiritual man and Cheryl and I were talking about this yesterday he talks about the fact that there are three aspects to all of us and we've talked about this in here there's our, our spirit there's our soul and then there's our flesh. And like God, we are triune in nature. There's those three aspects of who we are. Flesh, soul. Soul is your intellect, your mentality, the seed of your emotions, your reason. But then there's your spirit. And Watchman Nee points out, and the Bible tells us, our spirit, that's truly where we commune with God. And it struck me this morning as Les was sharing and he was talking about God stretching out his heart to us. That the place that we truly commune with Him, that we really connect with God, is in our spirit. Which is why we can sing words like, it is well with my soul. There is only one way for it to be well with my soul, and that's for it to be right with my spirit. If your spirit is right with God, you're communing with God spiritually. And by the way, that's the only way worship works. Worship is communing with God in spirit. We get into a place that is spiritual, that is, you can't define it, you can't explain it, but it is spiritual. And we commune with God there. When that is right, the spirit overtakes the soul, and the soul as well. And for all, all the things going on in life, whether unreasonable, the storms that may come, it doesn't matter, the soul as well, because the spirit is right with God. So pick up that book, The Spiritual Man, Watchman, Knee. I don't normally uh, encourage books outside of Scripture. That one is, is excellent. You want to read that. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Let me pray and we'll get started.
I thought we already had started, Rick. No, that was actually a bonus. <laughs> Father, we thank You for the blessing of Your Word this morning. The blessing of Your Word, who is Jesus. Thank You for coming, Jesus. Thank You for teaching, for speaking. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You began speaking Your Word thousands of years ago, before You ever set foot on the earth. Speaking Your Word, Lord, through Your servant Moses to bring the Torah. And then speaking Your Word through the prophets and bringing insight and and prophecy. And then speaking Your Word in the flesh, incarnate in Jesus, living among us. In Your teachings, we continue to hear Your Word. And then the, in the inspiration, Lord, of, of the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, as we see, finally we begin to understand some of Your Word explained that we didn't know before. And we thank You, praise You, and we worship You, Lord, for Your Word, which You have magnified according to all Your name. And as we open Your Word this morning, and as we consider Your Word, Jesus, which is who You are, I pray that you will sink deep into our spirits, deep into our hearts. On the way, Lord, would you wash our souls, wash our minds, our mentality, cleanse us of the things that are wrong thinking. But Lord, land in our spirits this morning and give us insight and revelation that can only come by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Mark chapter 4, And I have to go back a little bit. For those of you who weren't on here on Wednesday night, I need to kind of give you a sense of where we were. Because what happens at the end of the chapter, which is what we're primarily going to look at in a few minutes, comes after what happened in the beginning of the chapter. Isn't that marvelous how that works? But in Mark chapter 4, Jesus begins and He ends the day in the exact same place. Not just locationally, but in the same boat. He starts the day in a fishing boat, on Lake Kinnerot, what we call the Sea of Galilee. And He teaches from that place at the beginning of the day. And at the end of the day, we find Jesus in the exact same boat, still teaching. Now, what's great about Mark chapter 4 is it is a marvelous and long day of teaching. If you could go to a Jesus conference, you knew Jesus was showing up, and He's going to do a day-long conference, morning to evening, would you want to go? Well, guess what? It's not going to be down in the key arena. Jesus would probably pick a boat just off of West Beach. And He'd show up and it would be low-key and there wouldn't be a sound system and there wouldn't be a big praise band and there wouldn't be lights and there wouldn't be tickets sold. He'd just show up and the people would be drawn to Him as they were. And on this day, He begins to teach. I call this Jesus Conference 29 B.C. First one. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 1, we see it start. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. He took a seat in the boat for a couple of very good reasons. One, so that uh, he he didn't want to go overboard with his teaching. (laughs) And secondly, (laughs) more... More appropriately, he taught because he was a rabbi. And when rabbis taught, we've talked about in here, they sat down. That was kind of part and parcel of being a rabbinical teacher, of having your students and your disciples. The disciples always knew, the followers of a particular rabbi knew. When the rabbi sat, 
it was probably teaching time, and they would gather to their rabbi and sit down around him in a circle, and he would begin to teach and expound to his followers the word. Well, when rabbis taught, they sat down. When they preached, or directed, or commanded, they would stand up. And so it was a very visible way for the followers of any particular rabbi to know he's teaching us now, or this is he's commanding us now. So on this day, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus sat in the boat just offshore, and the masses, along with the twelve, heard the rabbi teaching, the rabbi in the rowboat. And he begins to teach. He gave three vital teachings in Mark chapter 4. Three absolutely critical teachings for understanding not only the kingdom, but the rest of his teachings for the rest of his time of ministry. The very first one, and the key to all the parables, is the parable of the sower. Verses 3 through verse 30. Many of you have heard that parable over the years. The sower went out to sow, he scattered seed, and then he describes four different kinds of soil on which the seed is sown. This parable is the first one, according to Mark, that Jesus taught. And it's absolutely significant because it deals with the quality of the heart. God reaches out His heart, as Les shared, to us, to mankind. The heart has to meet God. The heart is where God is received, where His Word gets in. It is not the soul. It is not the seed of knowledge. Many people over the centuries have heard the Word of God, have gotten it into their heads, but it didn't get any further, and they never came into a relationship with Jesus. It's got to get into the heart. And Jesus speaks about how our entire faith life depends on the Word of God going heart deep, sinking in, getting implanted. He says if the the heart is road hardened, our entire faith is not going to work because the Word never gets in at all. It just hits that hard packed, hard pan ground. If the heart is rocky, Well, it might get in a little bit. It might tickle the ears or or interest someone, but it's superficial. It can't take root. And when the Word gets no roots in your life and any kind of storm blows in, guess what happens? The little sapling blows away and cannot hold on. So Jesus talks about that. He says in verse 13 of chapter 4, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? This one, Jesus says, is the key to all the rest. And perhaps you've known or perhaps you've been superficial in your faith and hard times have come and you found yourself just having a hard time believing at all. Jesus said in verse 17, they have no firm root in themselves but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word... Immediately, they fall away. Those are the ones that you would say perhaps never had a relationship with Jesus. Oh, they may have showed up at church, may have gone to a few Bible studies, but it never truly got in, it never took root. A third kind of soil that Jesus talks about, if the heart is restricted, if it's thorny, He portrays the worries, the cares, the stress of this life and how it chokes out the implanted Word. And that, I think, is the biggest danger, the biggest threat to Christians today. The Word's gotten in, but the cares of life begin to choke it so that it cannot function in your life. The power doesn't flow the way God intended for it to flow. But Jesus says if the soil is rich, if it's good, if it's that deep, rich, brown earth, then the heart is not road-hardened or rocky or restrictive. It is reproductive. Literally, that heart is the heart into which the seed is sown and it becomes a sower of seed to others. 
Jesus describes all this and says it's critical. Let me ask you this question. How much of Christ's Word are you getting on a weekly basis? An hour? You come on Sundays and this is it? You get one hour a week? Could you survive on one hour's worth of food a week? Now maybe you say, well Rick, no, I, I come Wednesday night as well. Okay, two. Maybe two and a half, you know, on a good Wednesday. <laughs> Is two and a half hours a week all you're getting? Well, no, Rick, I, I do quiet time whenever I can. Okay, three or four more hours. So you're up to five hours a week. How much is enough? How much is too much? Is there too much? Are you into a daily Bible reading, a daily quiet time? I'm asking you this to think about it personally because the reality is the degree to which I am rooted in the Word of God who is Jesus, not just the book, but Jesus Himself, the degree to which I am rooted in the Word is the degree to which I am able to face the storms of life, the challenges to my faith the difficulties of even living in this world. And people will say, I'm just having such a hard time. And, you know, often my first thought is, how much time are you in the Word? I see people going through hard times. And they just, I can't be at church right now. It's just there's too much going on in my life. And I think, really? Are you in the Word at home at least? Are you in the Word? Are you you at another fellowship? Good, be in the Word. Because if you're not... You're going to find the trials, the stress, the worries are going to increase exponentially. But the more we're in the Word, the more those decrease. We need His Word in our hearts, in our lives. Jesus went on then to teach two more parables. It's kind of a two-part state of the kingdom address. As I shared on Wednesday, He shares the parable of the seed in verse 26 and 20 through 29. A parable that is only found in the Gospel of Mark. And in it, Jesus explains a marvelous thing. It's the unseen spiritual growth process of both the kingdom and the citizens of the kingdom. How the kingdom's growing, we may not see it. We may not realize the growth that's taking place. It is growing. God is having His Word accomplish what He sent it for. There is good news. Don't be discouraged or be depressed when you look around and you see churches going down and you see negative things happening in the name of Christianity and think, oh no, the kingdom's in trouble. Hey, the kingdom is secretly growing just like the farmer plants the seed and doesn't know how it grows. He just knows suddenly he's going to see the blade. Then he's going to see the head. And then he's going to see the fully mature grain. But it takes time. And it's not until the harvest Jesus says that the farmer comes along and puts the sickle to the the grain that is growing. So the parable of the seed, the harvest will come. The the farmer is certain of that one thing. And brothers and sisters in Christ, be certain of that one thing. No matter what we see going on in the church, in the world, the harvest will come. And that's good news. And then Jesus goes on and shares one more parable. It's the parable of the mustard seed. Verses 30 through 32. Listen. This is not, as some have taught, a parable about the mighty growth of the kingdom. The mustard seed. Oh, the church is like a mustard seed. Or the kingdom is like a mustard seed, smallest of all seeds, and you plant it, and it turns into this massive, beautiful, wonderful banyan tree. You know? See the banyan trees in Hawaii, there's that, there's that one, and I believe it's in uh, Lahaina. I could be wrong. But it's this tree that literally fills up the entire park. Massive, and it's it's came up out of the ground and then rooted right back into the ground. So you see all these trunks, but it is all one tree. And people look at the parable of the mustard seed and they go, oh, that's what Jesus means, this great big tree that grows up. And that's the kingdom. And I say, careful, 
in your understanding. Because there are birds in that tree, and the birds are evil. And I took some flack when I taught this back in Matthew. How can you say that about the precious little birds? They are evil. They pooped on my notes in Matthew. (laughs) They could do it again. The parable of the mustard seed is an insidious, visible invasion growth of evil within the kingdom. That's what Jesus says is going to happen. How do you know that, Rick? Because in Matthew's telling of this, he places three parables together. A trilogy of parables, all with the same meaning about the kingdom. Here are the three. It's in Matthew 13. Look at it another time. The parable of the tares in the wheat. Tares are a picture of evil. Implanted with the wheat. And they don't have any value to them. There's no food in them. They're just in there with the wheat. Jesus says that's a picture of the kingdom. Then he tells the parable of the birds in the branches of the tree that came from the mustard seed. That is a picture of evil getting into the kingdom. And then he finishes the trilogy with the parable of the leaven in the loaf. Leaven is always a picture of sin in the Bible. Sin spreading out into the entire loaf. And Jesus says, that's a picture of the kingdom. So be aware, it's going to happen. And with these three parables, Jesus taught all day long. All day long by the sea. He taught the Word. Jesus Conference, 29 B.C. In my free time yesterday, I ran across a stack of leadership journals that were placed in the room at the retreat center. Leadership journals going all the way back to 1982, 83, 84. And I remember back, I was a youth pastor, and remember thinking someday when I'm a mature pastor... And not, you know, a youth pastor. I'll read Leadership Journal. I'll probably subscribe to this, you know. And it has some people in it that I admired. And so I went back and thought, oh, this is interesting. And I was reading this one article on preaching. In fact, the whole uh, magazine for that particular, I think it was spring of 1983, was about preaching. And I was sickened by what I read. The whole thing was about minimalizing preaching. Getting it down to palatable, bite-sized amounts. Calvin Miller, who was, uh, some of you have read the Singer Trilogy that Calvin Miller wrote years ago, and he's written a lot of other great stuff, great man, but he made a comment about how at his church they were now on TV. And the producers from the TV wanted him to come in at 23 minutes on his sermons, and Calvin Miller's response was, man, I don't know if I can do that, I'm used to going 20. I went, wow, So I, I must have missed something here. Martin Luther said this about long sermons, quote, To me a long sermon is an abomination. For the desire of the audience to listen is destroyed, and the preacher only defeats himself. Apparently Jesus didn't get the memo. Because he preached all day. He sat down in the boat, and he began to preach, and he did this all day long. And in verse 33, we're told with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it, which was all day. That should tell us something. Rick, are you going to go all day today? I don't think so. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And that's one of my favorite parts of the whole story, is then the apostles got Jesus Conference 29b. They got to get alone with Jesus. 
sit down with them. I don't know if you've ever done this, gone to a conference and you've heard a speaker speak, it's really touched your heart, and you just think, man, I would love five minutes with that guy. I'd love to just sit down and ask him some questions on what he said or what's going on in my life and get some insight. The apostles got that with Jesus constantly. He would preach to the masses, and then they'd get alone, and Peter or one of the other guys would go, Duh, I didn't get that. Could you explain that to me? Because, you see, the apostles were not yet Jesus' brain trust. They still needed time. They needed training with Jesus. And they needed something they wouldn't get until after His resurrection. Something you have if you are in Christ today. And that is His Spirit. Well, they didn't have His Spirit. No wonder they didn't understand so much of what He taught. No wonder He had to explain it to Him. But He did. In private training, after hours. And that's the background to the story we're going to look at this morning. If you don't know that, and I had to go through that, some of what happens in this story may not make sense to you. Verse 35. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in a boat just as he was. Just as he was. What does that mean? It means he's still in the boat. That's all it means, that he is still in the boat. He didn't get out of the boat and go collect things for the journey across the sea. He was still in the boat. He finished teaching. He says, let's row. And off they went. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. (laughs) And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down. And it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The largest of the shipping boats that were on the Galilee in in Jesus' day were roughly 26 feet long, 7 feet wide, and about 4 feet high. Those are the biggest ships that were there. We know this because of the 1986 discovery by two brothers of a boat some of you have seen. It is called the Jesus Boat. Discovered, embedded in the mud, encased there for the centuries between the ancient harbors of Ginnasar and Migdal, or Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. Moshe and Yuval Lufan, amateur archaeologists, were digging around on a low period as the Sea of Galilee had, had receded, digging around in the mud, and they found the outline of this boat, and it's a marvelous story of how they got this boat up and out of the water. Experts believe this particular boat was built around 40 B.C., but was sailed long into the first century. Was Jesus in that boat? We don't know, but we do know it's absolutely representative of the exact kind of boat Jesus would have sailed in, Peter would have fished off of, James and John would have owned and fished off of with their father, Studies of ancient ships like this reveal that they most likely had a crew of five. Four men on the oars, one man steering, one helmsman, if you will. The boats also would have a mast, so they could be sailed as well as rowed. It could go either way. And Josephus tells us that though the average would be five, these boats could, if in a pinch, could hold up to 15 people, but you'd be packing them in pretty tight. But Mark says, and note this, Other boats were with him. 
So it wasn't just the one boat. I always kind of thought in my biblical imagination, it was just Jesus and the apostles packed into the one boat and off they went. But there were other boats with him as they sailed across the sea that evening. Keep that in mind. Probably four or five men each in these boats. Verse 37 says there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Now some of you know the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the entire world. Interesting, Israel boasts the lowest freshwater lake at 693 feet below sea level. It also boasts the lowest point on planet Earth at the Dead Sea. There's nowhere deeper, nowhere lower. The Sea of Galilee itself is a basin surrounded by hills. sits kind of like, like a bowl. On the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, Lake Kinnerot, there's a passage which opens out between the hills of, of Mount Arbel and Mount Natai. And from there, it's about 30 miles out to the Mediterranean Sea, running between what they call the Horns of Hattin. And it works, that channel, we've talked about, works like a wind tunnel. Literally, the storms off the Mediterranean or the gusts of wind off the Mediterranean would go rushing through this channel and could come blasting out into the Sea of Galilee and there could be an instantaneous storm. It could happen that quickly. It could be blue sky and all of a sudden, you're in the midst of a horrible tempest. And in Jesus' day, many boats went down. Many fishermen lost their lives. It was the most dangerous job on the Galilee or in that region in Jesus' day. Because the fishermen who would so quickly be killed caught up in these storms and taken down. Even today, it's dangerous for boats on Lake Kinnerot. And so, those who are taking boats out are aware of the weather patterns and they're, and they're cautious. The boats are a bit bigger now. Gail Irwin tells a story about being out on one such boat. Uh, on an on Israel tour, his tour group out on the boat and suddenly the wind and the waves and the rain began to kick up in a squall. And a young man on the boat thinking, what would Jesus do? Stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves. And immediately the engine quit. (laughs) So you've got in this story, and get this picture, all that to say, you've got small boats, you have a sudden storm, and you've got a snoozing Jesus. Verse 38. Jesus himself was, himself was in the stern, asleep, on a cushion, in the storm. He wasn't down in a nice enclosed cabin with soft Keith and Christian Getty music playing in the background. He was on the stern. They, they had the, these little stands in the front and in the back side of the boat, these little platforms, if you will, raised up a bit. He was laying on that. Water's crashing over the sides of the boat. Thunder's cracking, the wind's blowing, and he's just having a nice bit of shut-eye. Now, granted, he deserved it. He'd been teaching all day long. No wonder he was exhausted, but I believe there was more to it than that. But he reminds me of my dad who can sleep through anything. My dad can fall asleep reading a book, sitting up. I'm not talking about you're in bed and you just, you know, the book drops. He can fall asleep like this. Sound asleep. Dad, dad, I'm awake. You know, you do that. I remember as a kid, I drew my dad into my room one time. I was trying to share with him my musical interest at the time. It was the band Kiss. Hey, we're all redeemed here. All right, that's the idea. 
And it was the album Kiss Alive, and it was a song called 100,000 Years, which was this long 8 to 12 minute song, huge drum solo in the middle of it, and that's why I liked it. As a drummer myself, I'm like, this is so cool, you gotta hear this song, Dad. And my dad's like, oh, okay. He sat on my bed, leaning up against the wall, I start playing the song, I'm into the song, you know, I'm just going along, and I look over at my dad, out cold. <laughs> out cold. <coughs> so here's Jesus. Having completed this long day of teaching, deserving the rest, but it, listen, it wasn't even the storm that woke the Savior. It was the apostles verily, verily freaking out. They woke the Savior. And they said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Notice that. They called Him Teacher. And I think that's significant. Rabbi, the Holy Spirit caught that and made sure Mark included it in this account. He's the teacher in the tempest. He is the rabbi in the raging sea. And verse 39 says, He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And we have an introduction here in this one verse to demonology. Demonology. Listen to this. Peace, be still. Well, the phrase is common enough if, if you're a mom or a dad or a Sunday school teacher. Hush, pipe down. You know, silencio. Kids have a way of going Dale Force instantaneously. And so they need to be silenced. But how many of you have opened up your doors during, during one of those winter windstorms here in the San Juan Islands, opened your front door and said, Hush, be quiet. You know, I'm trying to sleep here. You're laying in bed. Going, well, and I said, be quiet. You don't do that. It's a little crazy. If you do that, we'd be making a call and some gentleman with white coats might be showing up at your door. (laughs) The Greek word Jesus uses here, both of them are very telling. Sipao thimuo. He says, hush, be still. Hush, sipao, is in the present imperative. And I'm telling you that for a reason. The present imperative. Imperative meaning it's a command. The present meaning now. So when he says, sipao, it's hush immediately. Don't think about it. Don't get back to me on it. Hush now. And then he says, which is be still. And that's in the perfect imperative. So an imperative, it's a command. But perfect means be muzzled and stay that way. Hush now, be muzzled, stay that way. Hush immediately, be muzzled, and stay that way. That is not something you say to the wind. Or the waves, for that matter. It's something you say to a personality. And I believe there's something more common than wind and water power going on here. In fact, this same terminology Jesus used to silence the demons. Mark 1.25, Jesus rebuked a demon saying, Be quiet! Come out of him! Same word. Fimuo! Be muzzled! Stop talking! Silence! There is a power who came and usurped authority over the natural created order of things. And the Apostle Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. He is also the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he's called the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Jesus referred to him as a thief who has one singular purpose in this world. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And we need to get this. We've got to understand that whether it's, it's storms or stress, 
or cyclones or crises, tsunamis or terror, this is what the enemy does. He stirs up storms. And he will do it in the physical, natural world. And he will do it in your soul world. He will stir up the storms. Now, I'm not saying the devil is responsible for every single blow, for every single storm. But I'll tell you what, when we, when we have so-called natural disasters, isn't it interesting, we call them acts of nature. Blaming the created world. Which is not sentient. The created world does not have a soul, a conscience, an understanding. It doesn't have the ability to say, time for a good storm. You know, It does what it's created to do unless that creation has been tampered with messed with, usurped. People always also call them acts of God. I would fall off my chair if uh, a meteorologist got on the, the TV and said, we've got a serious hurricane blowing uh, down there in the Gulf. A real act of Satan. It's blowing hard. It's causing destruction. It, you know, can you imagine someone saying that? We never say that. In fact, even to use that terminology, boy, that was a really satanic storm. People would go, oh, you're one of those weirdos. What a number. For all the evil in the world, people think it's nonsense to believe there's actually a devil. They think it's silly to believe that there's a personality out there that's driving evil, that there are demons out there serving this personality. They just, people think it's silly. And it's one of the things the God of this world has done best in blinding the eyes of those who don't believe. He has blinded this world to His own dark existence. And He is real. Jesus stated this explicitly. Jesus confronted Him personally. He is out there and He is behind many of the storms of this world and of your life. And Paul says, and you know the verse, Ephesians 6.12 Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that night on the Galilee, I am absolutely convinced that Jesus and the apostles were under attack, that the adversary was gunning for them, that every demon that would confront Jesus was either trying to undermine His ministry or frighten His disciples or destroy the life of our Savior. And finally at the cross at Calvary, Satan thought he'd done it. We've got Him. Always going after Him. No wonder Jesus says to the wind and the waves, Hush, be still! Evidencing His power over these things. By the way, that still works today. In Jesus' name, hush. Be still. In Jesus' name, knock it off. (laughs) In Jesus' name, if you need to, silencio. Be quiet. I wrote a recent blog post. And those of you who who get my blog, you saw this. If you don't, you're welcome to. Don't have to. I think the the address for it is, is in the bulletin. But the post is called Cleaning House. And, and it was all about this, how Jesus came into the world and, and there were, all of a sudden we just see this incredible intrusion of demons. And he's casting out demons right and left. What was he doing? He was cleaning house. Saying you don't go into the house and plunder the house of the strong man without binding the strong man first. So you've got to clean the house. And that's why he was casting out demons, to make room for the people to hear so at least their hearts could hear unhindered. 
And I believe we're called to do the same thing in evangelism today to clean house, to pray against the spirits, against the demons that are causing friends and families of yours and mine not to be able to hear. To at least give them the freedom of hearing the word clearly without the noise of the storms. So I wrote that blog post and I was asked in the post, is there a way to push back against evil effectively? How how do we do this practically? The Bible tells us, number one, very simply, resist the devil. Just resist. How about we start there? Instead of, oh, the storm's too hard. How about we push back? In the name of Jesus. Just resist. James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God... Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Wow, what an amazing, powerful statement. Resist him, and he'll run away. Chicken? You know? Just push back a little bit. So many believers just get, oh, I'm overwhelmed. Push back! In the name of Jesus. Resist the devil. Secondly, rest in faith. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter said, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But then listen to what Peter says. In agreement with James, he says, But resist him. Okay, I've heard that now twice. Peter, how do I resist him? Well, Peter goes on. Firm in your faith. Knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Other people are going through storms. Other people are dealing with stuff. You can resist Him. How do I do that? In your faith. Which means simply resist the things that are not of Jesus. It's not just resisting the personality, it's resisting what He's about. Resist the movies you shouldn't see. Pause just long enough to go to PluggedIn.com and recognize how foul that movie is and say, no, I'm not going to go. I resist. Resist the books you shouldn't read. Resist the conversations you shouldn't be in. Resist the gossip you shouldn't hear. No, I'm I'm not going to do that. Resist Him firm in your faith. Now, back to the story. So Jesus is dealing with, I believe, spiritual things. Hush! Be still! And of course, it was. But you might ask this question. Why in the midst of this storm, when the apostles need Him most... Why is Jesus sound asleep? Maybe you've asked that question in your own life, in your own storms, your own difficulties. Why is He asleep? Why isn't He answering me? Why doesn't He at least grab an oar and help out? And I think that's what the apostles were asking for. Listen, Jesus was not sleeping in apathy. Jesus was sleeping in security. He was sleeping because He could. You think he didn't know the storm was coming? I think he absolutely knew the storm was coming. They were going to head out to the storm, but you know what? I need a nap. And out he went. Why? Because he was absolutely secure. The storm was no threat to him. Remember, Colossians 1.17 says, He's before all things, and by him all things hold together. Which includes the boat. You, know? you have Jesus on the stern of the ship. The ship is not going to break apart. So he's sleeping in security. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us the Lord thy God is in the midst of thee and is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will, listen, he will rest in his love. 
He's at rest. He's not worried. By the way, any of you ever having have trouble sleeping? Stress hits you? I was talking to a brother last week who just came up and said, just one question, I'm having a real hard time sleeping. Any suggestions? I said, boy, you've come to the right source, not me, but Jesus. You're having trouble sleeping, why don't you turn to Him before you go to sleep? Why don't you rest in His love? Hey, resist the devil, absolutely. Rest in faith, or resist in faith, most certainly, but most importantly, rest in His love. That's where the security lies. We forget in the midst of our storms and trials and tribulations how much Jesus loves us. He's right there. He he hasn't abandoned you. He's sleeping because He's secure. Now, He's not technically sleeping. In fact, the Bible tells us He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always wide awake and aware of your circumstances. But He's in complete security. Complete peace. He's the one in John 14 who said, Do not let your heart be troubled. That's not a Sean Hannity line. It's a Jesus line. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. That's how your heart's not troubled. He said later in that same passage, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. When the tempest stirs up in your life, when all of a sudden things are out of control and difficult and you don't know how to handle it, how to face it, what to do. Jesus is not in heaven going, oh, oh goodness, this is a tough one. Oh my, oh, Father, can we, we got to get some, you know. No. He's at rest. He's in perfect peace. He's chilling with the Father. He is not anxiously pacing the throne room saying, how are we going to help Him out of this mess? And so Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4.6 But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. By the way, comprehension is the soul. His peace surpasses the soul. And it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the storm didn't wake Jesus. The apostles did. He wasn't fretting about the storm. He was sleeping in the stern. His friends are frightened and their hearts are failing. And the second the apostles call on Him, again, the storm didn't wake Him, the apostles did. What does that tell you? The moment His boys called out, cried out to Him, He was on it. He didn't go, Peter, go away. John, five more minutes, dude. He was up, He was alert, hush, be still. And it was over. The moment they called on Him, when they reached out for Him, the storm wasn't a problem. Their faith was the issue. Isaiah 65.24, the Lord says to you and to me, and this is a prophecy of the church, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. He's not going to sleep through your prayers. He hears you. And Jesus said in John 14, 18, I love this verse, I will not leave you as orphans. And then He says, I will come to you. I'll come to you. I will be there instantaneously in the storm. I'm not going to do anything in the storm because I'm not concerned about the storm unless you cry out for me until you cry out for me. And then I'm there. And I respond to you. 
Okay, getting all that, why did Jesus lead the apostles into this dangerous demonic deluge in the first place? Why take them there? And here's the point of the whole teaching. In that calm, glassy sea, after muzzling the wind, we discover Jesus, in fact, had a reason for taking them into the storm. A purpose for going across, knowing what was coming. Verse 40, He said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? What do you mean, do you still have no faith? After all we've talked about today, after all this teaching on the shore, you still have no faith? Did you not hear what we were discussing? Did you miss this? Remember, the apostles cried out, Teacher! On the boat! And that's exactly who He is. Exactly what He was doing. He was teaching in the boat that morning. He's still teaching the boat in the boat that night in the tempest. The enemy, He's using the storm to destroy Jesus. To frighten, to terrify the apostles. Terrorism is one of His greatest tactics. And Jesus used the moment for an apostolic pop quiz. Because after teaching, John Corson says this, it's a good word, after teaching comes the test. Right? You're taught first, you learn the material, and then comes the test. Then comes the point of learning. Jesus said, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? What did we just spend the entire day talking about? The Word of God must take root in our hearts. Verse 17 tells us so that when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, you don't fall away. Did you catch that? It's not just persecution or temptation. It's when it arises, affliction, because of the Word. Why were the apostles facing an affliction, the tempest, the storm, in the middle of the Galilee that night? Why? Because of the Word. Because they were with Jesus. If Jesus hadn't been on the boat, they're no threat. Lima, let them sail. But they were with Jesus. And it was an affliction, it was persecution because of the Word. So note this, if the Word is deeply rooted in your heart, you're not going to fall because of the storms, but you are going to go into the storms. There will be a test. And sometimes the test comes immediately after hearing the Word. Sometimes the test comes a little while after. Once the Word is really sunk in and you're living it, suddenly, boom, here comes the storm. And for the enemy, it's a storm to destroy. But for the Lord, it's a test to secure. Do you still have no faith? He says. Didn't you hear the kingdom teachings? Talking all day long about the kingdom, really do you think a storm is going to capsize the plans of God? You really think what's happening here is going to destroy this whole mission? Did you not hear what I said about the kingdom? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Paul says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now we think in, we think the word temptation, immediately we think someone trying to lure us into evil. But the word temptation in the Greek, parasmos there, 
is used both of temptation when you're talking about Satan trying to lure you. It is also the same word used to describe testing, which is what the Lord does in your life, in my life. Satan will tempt, God will test. Not testing to see if you'll fail, testing to prove the faith that he is implanting in your life. He's not trying to undermine you. That's what Satan's doing with temptation. God is trying to deepen your roots. What happens on North Whidbey Island when the winds blow to those tall trees? They hold on. The roots learn to grow deeper so the tree doesn't go down. And that is always God's in, his in, intention approving of your faith. He doesn't send the storms to sink you. He sends the storm to sink His Word into your heart deeply. So that you can hold on. James chapter 1 verse 2, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The word trials is parasmos. Same word, temptation, trials, testing. Knowing that the parasmos of your faith produces endurance. He says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your parasmos, for your testing, for your proving. Don't be surprised, he says, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. So understand what's going on. When the storms come crashing into your life, Rabbi Jesus is the teacher in the tempest. He's teaching. He is training. He is testing. He's building your faith, securing His Word, calling you to account for, that is to understand what it is that He's taught you. He's getting it in. And as I said before, if you are in His Word, every storm, every trial strengthens you for the next one that's coming. For the apostles, the next storm that was coming would be the second they hit land. Because Mark chapter 5 opens up with them facing a demoniac. But know what happens in verse 41 of chapter 4. When they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Finally they are starting to get it. What are you talking about, Rick? They were afraid. They were not afraid of the storm. It was gone. They were not afraid of the waves. They were flat. They weren't afraid of the wind. It wasn't blowing anymore. They were very much afraid of Jesus. Now their fear of the elements, their fear of the storm, even their fear of this attack had translated into fear of Jesus. And that is absolutely key. That is the right place to be. Because if they fear Jesus, when they land on the shore and the demon-possessed man in chains comes rushing at them, I fear Jesus more. I fear Jesus more than the storms that the enemy throws at me. I fear Jesus more than the enemy himself. I fear Jesus. So I'm going to stand behind Him. I'm going to trust in His strength and His power to overcome all of these things. The apostles are not afraid of the storm. They fear Jesus. And again, it's a good place to be. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, that's fine, Pastor. For you to sit up there and tell stories, you don't know the storms that I have been through. And you're right, but I want you to see something perhaps you missed. Back in verse 36. 
leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. What does that mean? It means it wasn't just the apostles and Jesus. If it was just the apostles and Jesus, there were three or four men to each boat, and there were several little boats, three, four, five boats. Probably what that means is that there were the apostles with Jesus, and there were other people who just hadn't had enough Jesus for the day. They wanted more, so they got in their boats and they followed along. Guess what? They were all in the storm. You could say they were all in the same boat. (laughs) They were all there. Everybody went through the storm. Everybody was present in the storm. You know what that reminds me? Everybody goes through storms. You are not alone in the storm. You're not by yourself in your little boat trying to paddle as the wind and the waves crash over. Oh, my laundry, I'm all by myself. No, you're not. Look around. You are surrounded by people this morning in the storms. A young woman came up to me. I may have already shared this, but it was so profound to me. Came up a couple of weeks ago and said... I have a past. And I just smiled. I'm like, look around. (laughs) Welcome to the barn of pasts. (laughs) Everybody has a past. Everybody goes through storms. Everybody faces hardships. I looked out, I shared this with the women last night. I looked out at this 70 women in this room, and I thought, man, they are so different. There's one thing they have in common, two things really. They're all women, which I didn't have in common, so it was a little freaky. And the second thing. They knew Jesus. Other than that, their lives, their situations, their stresses, their struggles, just like ours this morning, completely different. All these little boats. And all going through the storm. But guess what happened? When Jesus said, hush, be still, it wasn't just His boat that was saved. It was all their boats. It's not a statement of universal salvation. It's a statement of God's grace to cover anyone who is willing to sail with Him. To follow Him to be with Him. Whatever your turmoil or tempest, you're not alone. But don't miss this final thing. Something else I think the teacher wanted to imply to the apostles, wanted them to get. What did He say right before they set sail? Verse 35. Let us go over to the other side. The Word said, let us go over to the other side. Jesus didn't say, batten down the hatches! Stole the mission mask! This is going to get ugly! Hold on for your lives, Peter! We may lose you! <laughs> Jesus said, we're going over to the other side. That was the word that was spoken before they set sail. Same word to you and me. We are going over to the other side. We are not going to get capsized in this storm, in this life. We're going over to the other side. We have that promise. We sail with Jesus. He guarantees we are going to land on that other shore. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14.3 And Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will remain and be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, which means we're no longer in the sea. And so we will always... Be with the Lord. The Word has spoken. And the Word is, you're going to the other side if you will just set sail with me. What a great promise. I, I, just, I just love Jesus. And I love how firm He is and how clear He is in declaring exactly 
where He's taken us. Are you in Christ this morning? Can you say with full assurance, yeah, I belong to Him. Yes, my life is His. I am in Christ. If you are, you have nothing to fear from the storm. Because as Paul says, both the dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ when He comes are going home, are saved. If you're not in Christ today, I invite you to be. To be in Christ. Rachel, come on up, if you will. Mark 16.16 says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. What does that mean? It means you believe in Christ and you're saved. But it says, and is baptized. Well, yeah. But baptism means nothing if you don't believe. Baptism is the outward response. Baptism is that physical way. We take our bodies into the water. We get washed and we show the world... I belong to Him. We're reacting. We're responding. We're obeying. But you start by believing. Do you believe in Jesus? And if so, He's going to get you to the other side. Let's stand up together. Some of you shepherds will go to the back and if a few of you guys will come up to the front, that would be awesome. And we give you opportunity just to respond to Jesus. He says, I'm going to get you there. And so this morning as, as we pray, I just invite you to think about the Word as it's sinking into your heart, to think about the Word of Christ. If you're unsure about your salvation, He invites you to come. And the easiest way to do that is just go to the back or come up to the front and talk to one of these folks. Pray with them. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Start right there. If you're in the midst of a storm and you find yourself reacting to some of this by saying, Ah, man, I'm crying out, Jesus, help me. Why don't you come and pray with one of your brothers or sisters and get focused on the Word who can save you. Either way, if you have a need, come. Let's bow. Close our eyes for a moment. Don't wait for me to finish praying. If you need to respond in any way, you go ahead and and move. Jesus, we praise You. We find our security and our peace in You, Lord. In the midst of the terrible blows that can come into our lives, we are so thankful. I am so thankful, Lord, that I have a Savior to be anchored to. I'm so thankful to be in the boat with you, to have you in the stern. I'm thankful for the peace that you provide and for the strong and mighty voice that declares, Hush, be still, to any enemy force. Anything that would come against the will and the purposes and the plan of God. And Jesus, I trust you for these things. I falter. I get wobbly in the boat. I have stresses and worries that that would try to, if possible, choke your word. But I believe you, Jesus. I know your kingdom's coming. 
Whether I see it or not, I know the harvest is coming. And I know that I know that I know you promised we would go over to the other side. And I pray that you would secure your promise in the hearts of your believers, of your people this morning. And I pray for anyone who has not received Jesus and given Him their lives, that they will respond to Him, to you, Lord Jesus, this morning and will begin that walk of faith. And we praise You, Lord. And I ask, finally, Father, just that it would be well with our souls because we are right in spirit with You.